And you know, if you're doing it, what do you really have to lose? If you fail, just pick yourself back up and try again. Like anything, anything is possible, right? Like anything before you get to your goal, I've always said it's just a bump along the road. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third episode of the 30 something podcast and our second interview. So in this episode, I sit down with Arnold Ma. Now, Arnold is somebody I had the pleasure of seeing speak at a marketing sort of conference. And Arnold's experience is that he set up an agency that helps brands break into China. Now, he moved over from China himself when he was really young to Essex. And I'll let him tell more about that story. But his whole experience and knowledge is about technology, what's going on with China, everything they're doing there with their social media apps, sort of the culture, how that's directing the way things are going. And he has an absolutely fantastic podcast himself that I recommend called WTF China, which is what's the future China? Because obviously since they are moving at such a fast pace in technology, even more so than you know a lot of the Western countries, that's where the name came from and as always we go into his background his experience he kind of shares his wisdom and everything he's sort of done with life how he balances it all and if you're interested in China and the general entrepreneurship stuff then this episode is definitely for you and just before we jump in I want to say thank you to everyone who's given me feedback so far a couple of the comments were that it's quite sudden going from this introduction into the episode, which I completely understand, and apparently I need to get a jingle, so if anybody knows a good jingle guy or girl, please direct them my way. And also somebody mentioned that it does come across quite interviewy, and obviously I want this to feel as relaxed as possible, which it is, but I film everything for the video content, and the moment you kind of like put a camera on people, things stiffen up a wee bit more for people who are not used to it but if you listen kind of further in you do feel things warming up as people get used to the flow of it and also as always thank you to everyone who's left a review so far on apple podcasts like i keep saying it but i always mean it like i massively appreciate it if you are listening if you like this episode if this is the episode to get you to subscribe leave a review then great and for kind of like engaging with one another personally i always say follow the at 30 something interviews podcast page on instagram that's where the video content goes but please you know share if you're listening it's good to get feedback there and just you know comment on the posts and just get involved in the community there anyway that is enough for this introduction and we will dive right on into the episode before I get the jingle. So Arnold, thank you very much for coming on the 30 something podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I don't good. like to admit that I'm in my thirties, but it's okay. <laughs> it's funny, you're probably not surprised how many people say that. I, was like, I don't really want to admit to it, but I'm like, it's fine. We won't say what it is. You could be 31, you could be 38. Could be, could be 30 and a half. Yeah, <laughs> leave it to the imagination of the viewer yeah, to figure exactly. out for themselves. But uh, the way I kind of like to start this, as I mentioned, is just, some people might not know who you are. Okay. And I know about your background to a certain point, but it'd be good to hear your story all the way up to the creation of the business. Wow. It's a long story. Yeah. Don't know if we have time. Um, away how many I'll just be kind of been. really brief, I guess. Um, I was born in China um, in a town. I was, I was actually born in Xi'an, uh, which is where the Terracotta Warriors are. And then I moved to a much smaller town outside of Xi'an called Yangling. Um, my mum came over to this country to do her PhD, study her PhD. So I went to live with my grandparents. And that happens quite a lot in China. It's a, a lot of kids grow up with their grandparents and then their kind of parents go to the bigger cities to work. It's kind of relating to the overall, I guess, the... The, the the drastic change that China went through that caused a lot of urban migration. So people would go from kind of villages to cities to work and then leaving their kids to be looked after their grandparents. I mean, China's always culturally has been quite multi-generational anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, kids grow up with their grandparents, either living with their parents or sometimes being looked after directly by their grandparents. Um, so it wasn't anything unusual, um, but... I lived in a small town called Yangling for quite a long time, uh, which is near Xi'an. Uh, and 
at the age of nine, uh, in 96, I came over to this country um, in, in Essex, of all places. <laughs> so I grew up in Essex. So I think I'm uh, almost more of an Essex boy than I am. I am Chinese sometimes. But um, I've always kind of like missed the China side of my the, the, the China side of my of my life and mm. the, the, the memories I had as I was a child. Um, so when I grew up, I was always interested in technology. Um, when I grew up, I started looking more into technology, which kind of naturally led on to internet. Uh, and then I started learning, kind of teaching myself how to design websites, build websites and promote websites. I remember discovering SEO back in like 99 or 98. So what age were you then? It was like 11 or 12, I right. think it was. I discovered, so I built like a, I was a big fan of anime. I was a bit of a geek. I loved Dragon Ball Z. Do you know Dragon Ball Z? I did watch it when I was Dragon younger, Ball yeah. Z is awesome. <laughs> that's the first time that's been admitted anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dragon Ball Z. I think it was awesome. So I built a website about Dragon Ball Z, like talking about the episodes and the characters. And I wanted people to see it. So back then, we didn't have, uh, there wasn't Google. It didn't come in until kind of like the, the 2000s. And search engine, I think people forget as well. Like I say this all the time, people forget how bad search engine were before Google. Like you, you just couldn't find anything. You'd have to go through pages and pages of stuff. Um, so I built the website and I figured out you could just basically cheat the system by having loads of keywords at the bottom of the page yeah. in black text on a black background. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like ranking really high up and I was getting a lot of traffic. And that's, I guess, when my kind of like passion started on kind of like, um, I guess you could call that marketing, right? It's kind of like it's marketing. So it was the early days of SEO. Um, and what was your website about? Was it just about? Just about Dragon Ball Z, yeah, right, pretty okay. much. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining it now, you know, kids moved to Essex, started Dragon Ball Z site. How was it to adapt to the Essex life? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was strange. I was, I was the only Chinese kid in the whole school. Um, but everyone was really nice to me. I remember going into primary school. So I arrived, I think I was in, into year six when I arrived. Um, couldn't speak a word of English, literally right. not a single word. Yeah, I was going to ask. And I walked into the classroom and I, I had like an AC Milan top on. And then one kid was just like, AC Milan. And then we became like really good friends ever since. Um, so I was walking around with like a dictionary in one hand, pointing at random things with the other hand and just trying to. But you know, like when you're a kid, pick up languages really fast. So mm. I was quite fortunate in that instant. Um, and I, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are learning language now. Um, like, um, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people at Cuman learned Chinese at university. Louisa learned Chinese at university. And it's a lot harder when you're older to learn another language, I think. So I was quite fortunate. Yeah. No, I heard in some of your podcast episodes, I heard Louisa's pronunciation of yeah, words. And very, I was like, oh, her yeah, Chinese is amazing. Chinese, yeah. <laughs> for those who are listening. Louisa is, would you say, marketing manager of everything here at Cuban? Yeah. Or? Yeah. yeah. So Louisa's sitting in making she's sure like we probably don't say anything too bad. She's so. a producer. Yeah, she's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, so we were back to yeah, so, um, building the websites and that's when you got yeah, to when I when I went to university, I decided to kind of carry on with that and I studied internet security and, and network technologies. Uh, sorry, network security and internet technologies, which had a lot of stuff about uh, development. Uh, it, was, it was mainly programming, actually. It was kind of networking and programming. Uh, but after that, I went to uh, got my first job on client side doing kind of PPC and SEO, so more search engine marketing. Okay. Um, it was a very small company called MyRuby based in Colchester, so still in Essex in Colchester. And I learned a lot of kind of like, the kind of stuff you learn on your first proper job. I obviously had like paper around. I worked in shops and stuff and bars growing up. But that was my first office job. And I learned a lot of the basic skill sets. And then a few years later, I moved to London, um, worked for an agency um, called Kuzai, a great agency uh, that focused on, again, search engine marketing. So SEO, PPC, and they did a lot of content on social media as well. And that's why I learned even more um, kind of like, I guess, uh, hands-on marketing skills, looking after a variety of clients. Um, How long did you get away with the black text on black background? Oh God, like that was, 
that was like after Google came out, that was it. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. then, okay. then search engine became good, and yeah. and yeah, you had to do proper SEO and <laughs> proper PPC. So not very long, unfortunately. Um, but I was, I'm glad I got in there. <laughs> it was still around yeah. <laughs> in the like late nineties. Um, and then I guess while I was at Kuzai, uh, it was really good. Our kind of like our boss encouraged us, the founder, to make videos of things that we were passionate about. And for me, it was still about China. It was about Baidu. Baidu is a Chinese Google. Mm. Um, and I did a few videos. This was like 10 years ago. Um, so no one was really talking about, maybe eight years ago, no one was really talking about China. Um, so it got really good responses. And I started freelancing. Uh, and then I met um, Tom and Punk, who are co-founders, and eventually we started Cumin together. Cumin's been around for how many years? Cumin has been around for seven years now, I think. Seven Quite a long time, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. It flies by. Wow, well, seven it's years. It's funny, when I was listening to one of your guys' podcast episodes, you were talking about, it's like you said, people weren't speaking about China eight, yeah, ten yeah, years ago. Yeah, exactly. And in the view, seven, eight years ago, as you guys said in one of your episodes, was that China's just, you know, it's historically known for knocking things off. Exactly. And not originality. Whereas I guess if you've been on focusing on China the last seven, eight years, you've seen that development. Yeah. It's gone to yeah. become like a powerhouse. It's crazy. Technology and everything. So can you tell us a bit about how Cumin started off, why it started off, how you guys foresaw the opportunity, I guess the way China was going just what your experience of China has been because when I saw you do that talk it was just like a different world like how advanced they are how someone can control their whole day through WeChat their mm. version of Facebook so if you can just give us a bit more on that yeah I mean for us it's been an incredible experience kind of following because because of the nature of our job we have to follow China very closely and the developments of technology and people people's daily lives we have to follow it closer than anyone else who might not be in the industry I've I, I've been very proud of the way that China has changed over the last 10 years like I, when I was growing up when I was in secondary school uh, in the early noughties we were always taught China is a developing country, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's like a third world country. It didn't have the technology, the infrastructure that Western countries would have. And I always get, I would always get embarrassed because I'm Chinese and be like, you know, like I came from like a country that was far underdeveloped in the West and, yeah. and kind of growing up and seeing China go from something that was nothing on the radar of kind of the global stage to what it is now, which is essentially like, probably one of the most innovative, most powerful economies in the world with, with things that essentially defining the future of, of, of the world. And it's just been like a really incredible journey for us. And yeah, it's, you can tell I'm yeah, just very, very proud to, I guess, to kind of be, be following that so closely and be part of that and seeing that change and the transformation so of the country. Was there something specifically that triggered it that they were doing that made you decide to start the agency? Uh, yes, it was mainly it was mainly because I started freelancing when I was still at the, or when I just just before I resigned at the agency, I started freelancing mm -hmm. uh, and helping people to, uh, yeah, essentially implement Chinese marketing, so Chinese SEO, Chinese PPC, yeah. uh, and eventually. I had enough clients to just quit my job full time and do this full time. So were people coming to you being like, we want to break into China? Uh, or were you no, so China? actually, um, so Peng, who is now in China in the Shanghai office, we met at university. And when I spoke to him about this idea, he was like, yeah, that's great. Uh, we should definitely do this. So he had a few contacts that he went, he approached. I had a few contacts from when I was freelancing when I was at university. So we just basically spoke to our contacts and we yeah, and we, we got we convinced people that they needed this service and 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 that China is the next because back then this ten years ago China wasn't massive on the global stage but they were big enough for people to start to realize hey maybe China is the future maybe we should start over indexing on China and that's when we really start to get kind of like um, customers or like clients as almost as freelancers and eventually we got enough that we can just quit our jobs and work full-time so I quit my job first uh, and then Pung quit his job about a year later 
uh, and then Tom, who is another co-founder, also joined us as well. Um, so yeah. how did you convince your clients that they needed your service? They needed to get into China? Well, actually, this is a really good question because we we targeted sectors that already had China as part of their business. So, for example, education sector was one of our first industries we worked with because we already had Chinese students coming over. So they already they can feel the opportunity. Um, like we couldn't work with people, let's say some of the people we work with now are, uh, sports brands. Like back then China was nowhere on their radar, yeah. but for the education sector, they could see it happening. So we didn't have to convince them. It just, they knew it, it was, it was ready for us. Kind of going back to how everything started off, you guys got enough clients on boards and you were doing a sort of search engine optimization yeah. aspect for them in China. Mostly performance at the start, yeah. But you have you guys have advanced on that. Now. Yeah, helping with branding we have, yeah. And creating an identity in China. When did that start becoming like really important? To I them? don't know if I can say this. We've got like, a, there is actually a specific turning point when it happened, but um, I've always been a fan of advertising and creative anyway, because my mum is an artist. Uh, when she came to the UK to do a PhD, she, she did a PhD in fine art. And my dad is an engineer, so um, it's kind of like I've always had the both kind of like the technical and the, the the art side kind of ingrained in me. And I've always been fan of advertising because I love the craft and the timelessness of the way that the creative are, are built. Um, it's very different to a lot of digital campaigns. Not to say you can't create digital campaigns that have the same passion, um, but when we pitch to some of the bigger brands, so people like. FMCG brands, you know, like, uh, I don't, I won't say who it is, but people like PepsiCo, like Unilever. We pitched to one of them. Uh, it, we got a performance brief. It was like e-commerce brief on kind of channel, multi-channel optimization, attribution and tracking. And we thought this is great. It's like right in our sweet spot. This is what we love doing and what we've been doing for a long time. So we created this awesome attribution model strategy for them to essentially track every single channel uh, and connect it to the bottom line and how, how well they're converting. Uh, we sat in a room with like the e-commerce director who was absolutely loving us, the, uh, the, the, the marketing director who understood what we were saying and also the global brand director. And then halfway through, she was just like, can I just stop you guy there, please? Um, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Where's the story? Where's the creative? And we were like, shit. We didn't do the creative. And that's when we realized that uh, even if you do get like a performance brief, a lot of times we're working, when you're working with bigger brands, you have, to, you have to work on the creative as well. That's when we started to build an in-house studio with Chinese designers, Chinese creatives or copywriters. We also have Chinese strategists. This means we can provide, I guess, more... Because when people, when bigger brands go into China, they don't just want SEO or PPC, right? They sure. need their brand position, they need the overarching creative, the big idea that then kind of informs everything that goes underneath it. So performance, social media. So we also create a social media team. So now we're essentially full service because it's kind of more from the client demand rather than us wanting to move towards that way. Yeah. So is that all based in the office in China then? Uh, no, it's in the UK. So we're, we're essentially the only Chinese agency outside of China that has a Chinese creative studio that has Chinese performance team, Chinese social media team, uh, which means we can do everything that needs to be done closer to home in Europe to the brands that we're working with. How are you finding the uptake in that? Are a lot of people kind of hunting yeah. you down, trying to get that service? Yeah, we're getting, I mean, you always have to like pitch and, you know, it's, it's never easy, right? But I think because of, because of the unique offering we have of, having kind of like Chinese uh, Chinese staff and Chinese people in the London office, it helps that they could just pick up the phone to us anytime in the same time zone, or we could go take a cab, take a train to their offices and teach them about China and kind of open, kind of like, op I guess well, our mission is open the world to China. It's about opening up their mindsets on Chinese people and Chinese cultural behaviors that influence the platforms and the technology rather than kind of doing it backwards and learning about the platforms and then forgetting about the people. And a lot of what we do is educating people about Chinese people, educating clients about Chinese people and cultures.
So when you're given a brief, you've kind of got two jobs and you've got to educate them. Yeah. You can't just tell them what your plan is to do. You've got to be like, so this is why we're doing it. And you've yeah. got to go deep dive into like I mean, Chinese customer. I guess that's normal anyway, because you, you want to give them the rationale of why this idea works for the China audience and why we think this strategy will resonate with the people you're trying to communicate with. So we always start with insights anyway. So I guess that's like the education piece that yeah. you're teaching them about the people and cultural behavior specifically relating to this brief or this brand or this service or this product. Well, it's just so different because obviously you've got these heads of companies and everything who think they know their perfect customer, right? Yeah, they think they know true. who's going to buy true, their yeah. FMCG product or their tech product. Mm. And then this, you know, say they've been doing it for 40, 50 years. Then somebody comes in and starts telling them, actually, this is who's going to be it's buying completely your product. different. Yeah. yeah. And that's a very good point. I think a lot of, probably most mistakes that brands make is thinking that Chinese people are same as everyone else. And people tend to fall back a lot on universal truths. I don't know in advertising, if you know, if you're familiar with the term of universal truths in the sense that, you know, everyone, every mother loves her son and that's like a universal truth, right? Yeah. But it's like the way that these universal truths are reflected in different cultures between different people are completely different. Like a mother's love in Scotland is probably different to a mother's love in Xi'an. Yeah. And the way that she kind of like shows that love. And that's why we don't really believe, we think the days of universal truths are over. Uh, it's about truly understanding the people like you're talking to on a very, I guess on a very personal level, like how do you relate to them as if what you're doing or the campaign or the idea that you're creating comes from the culture within, from within rather than kind of like you're trying to talk at them. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one for brands, isn't it? Because they want yeah. this new market, but they've got their identity. Exactly. And how can they appeal to a new market without sacrificing their exactly. identity? That's actually a question. I don't know if that's you giving away your secret. No, it's or... it's no, it's not. It's not at all. And and this is something again we think about a lot. Uh, in a sense, uh, yeah, every brand have their kind of identity. You're hundred percent right. Um, but I think, I think you could do you could create campaigns and strategies in China or or, or other area or other other areas of the world without sacrificing your identity. In a sense that uh, what you stand for as a brand. Uh, as a product or as a service should remain the same. But how you, how you articulate that in different countries can be different. Mm. So, um, is there a clear example? Yes. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, so Apple, I think it does this really well in China. Uh, and do you remember the HomePod advert with, uh, the directed by Spike Lee by Apple? No. So it was like a, it was a, it was basically a woman, uh, I think it's in America or New York coming home on like the tube, like all squeezed up and stuff. She goes home, she's like really tired. And then she like relaxes, switches on a home pod. And then this kind of like psychedelic, awesome music comes on. And then the host, she starts dancing and then the room starts like shifting and becomes like really like, just like really, really, really psychedelic, really crazy and really fun. Um, it was kind of the idea was that I don't know, like for me, the way I interpreted it is that like it, it, in a lot of times in big cities that doesn't matter how many people around you, you still feel quite lonely and you have like stressful days, a lot of pressure. You come home, uh, HomePod provides escapism you need from the kind of like daily stress and the pressure that you get. Um, but in China, instead of going for something very kind of contemporary, very irreverent, very just kind of like psychedelic, they went for something very safe. Um, and that's the opposite of a lot of brands do. So they went for something, uh, I mean, Apple is a lifestyle product, right? It's about, it's about the lifestyle. When you have an Apple product, you, you you're, you're bought cool into the lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. So in China, instead of doing that, it was still about, it was still a lifestyle product. So the iPhone advert, uh, for Chinese new year, um, it was, the concept was really simple. It was basically the, uh, the kid who's gone to, um, I say kid, like a guy in his twenties who's gone to work in the city and he visits home for Chinese new year. He goes home to visit for Chinese new year. 
uh, visits his mother and his mother gives him this like bucket. It's like one of those big buckets you would carry like paint on, paint uh, with. And it's really heavy. He doesn't know what's in it. He carries it home. And then throughout the journey, it's like absolute nightmare because the handle is like really hard to carry. Uh, and he drops it at one point. He rolls down the hill. He has to pick it back up. He goes back home. He opens it up. And it's basically a bucket full of sand. And there's like 30 eggs in the bucket, one marked with each day. So it's basically his mother showing how much she loves him by saying you need to eat like an egg a day to like stay healthy. And and it's kind of like for someone Chinese watching that, for myself, it was like that's exactly what my mom would do. I, when I go home, even in Colchester, she would like give me like a box of grapes or and she would say, oh, you know, like take this. And even though it's like Sainsbury's group, I could just buy in Sainsbury's like in London. But it's... Yeah. It's all these kind of like awesome ways that moms show their love and you, you don't realize when you're a kid, when you grow up, you're like, oh, you know, it's like really, I don't know. I just, like, I get teary when I watch that advert and it's all the details in there as well. It's like when I remember like when, when, she, when he was moving, when he was uh, going to the station on a, on a bike, on the back of a bike, his mom's kind of like, you can see her expressions, she's like really sad yeah. and really longing for his kind of like, um, yeah, next time he comes back and. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was just, the whole thing, it was about kind of like, um, and the concept uh, connecting to the brand was about whole Apple products, kind of like uh, the whole thing was shot on an iPhone. So it was like the shot by the shot on an iPhone campaign. Yeah. It was about, uh, and then in the end, they had like photos of all these people bringing like home produce, whether it was like a, like a Chinese, um, like a dried fish or like, like ham, like, like Chinese ham and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And people were like giant bottles of oil from their home. It was just like, and, and this kind of message works really well in China. It's not, it's humble. It's kind of like not very, it's not like a brand like Dolce & Gabbana coming in, telling people, you know, how they should be and kind of like almost like creating a satire on the Chinese culture. Um, it's just kind of like still, I guess still, retaining what your brand is about which is kind of how it integrates with people's lives and how you can use it on a day-to-day -day basis and how it's a lifestyle product but maybe like using a different creative and a different concept to articulate that who do you think is really messed up if that's a good example who do we think <laughs> kind of like gone there's been a lot wrong end? there's been a lot recently um any non-clients that you're happy to be like <laughs> these guys did wrong yeah there's a <laughs> there's a lot i mean i think it's it's, it's quite easy to kind of like make these mistakes, right? Like if you're a brand, everyone talks about Dolce & Gabbana mistake where the, I don't know if you saw the advert. Was it the Chinese New Year? Uh, I can't remember if it was Chinese New Year, but it was basically like a, it was an advert of a Chinese lady trying to eat like pizza with chopsticks or like Italian food with chopsticks. And it wasn't very easy. It was just, it was like, it was like a satire on the Chinese culture. It's an easy mistake to make because Dolce & Gabbana became successful by being very satirical in the West, by being kind of very rebellious. And the founders' personalities were kind of very unfiltered and they said what they wanted. And that, that, that worked well for them in the West, clearly, because they're one of the biggest fashion brands in the world. Um, they just didn't realize when they went into China that they couldn't use the same thing because Chinese people, because of the, I was saying earlier, like Chinese people are very proud of what China has became over the last kind of four years mm -hmm. and achieved. And they're very nationalistic, uh, very protective of that. So when they did the same thing and creates kind of a satirical advert about Chinese culture, it just didn't get received very well. Seen as disrespectful. Yeah, exactly. So I think rather than, do, and it's easy mistake because they assumed if it worked for me in the West, why couldn't it work for them in China? Um, which is, you know, fair enough. I think you just need, to, again, it goes back to understanding people and cultures. And we say this to the clients all the time. If you understand people and cultures, if you understood that Chinese people would overreact, and I think there is an element of overreaction, um, if I'm completely honest, if you knew Chinese people would react, overreact on social media, you would have stayed away from that and did something safer like Apple, maybe focus on the family theme, uh, you know, like urban migration or generational divide, which are all very topical themes um, on the back of the kind of like the rapid socioeconomic growth over the last 40 years. Well, I suppose brands need somebody like you. So this is a good pitch for you here. Yeah, no, I suppose brands Thank need you. somebody <laughs> like you. Uh, brands need somebody like yourself to advise them, I'd imagine. And is there, 
is there many people who've kind of jumped on that market mark because obviously people must see that um, it's a need yeah Brands i guess know it's a need um i guess that's where our niche is so there might be a lot of agencies in in the uk or in america or in europe that are focusing on chinese marketing but we feel most people tend to talk more about the platforms and the technology uh, they tend to focus more on platform te technology and less on Chinese people and cultures, which is understandable because China is such a confusing place sometimes, can be intimidating. Um, it's easier to fall back on technology and platforms and to drill really deep and understand why things are happening rather than what is happening. Yeah, it's quicker. So, they feel they can maybe get faster. Yeah, exactly. You can like, you can, yeah, exactly. Like data-driven marketing, right? You can get there quickly by analyzing technology platforms and data. Um, so what we think is that, and, and, so, and, and a lot of people, because of that, they tend to focus and they chase what the next big platform is, what the next WeChat is, what the next Weibo is. And, and we think rather than chasing the next big platforms, let's look at why WeChat became so popular, what the cultural and the kind of behavior reason are behind that. And maybe we can use that information to figure out what the next move might be on Chinese social media, what the next big trend will be, what the next big technology that will integrate into people's lives. Because it's always the people that are driving the platform. It's not the platforms that are changing the people's lives. So again, I was saying this to Louisa the other day, uh, or rather yesterday, that if WeChat started in the UK, back before WhatsApp existed, it would have evolved into a completely different platform than what is WeChat is in China. It would probably evolve into what WhatsApp, WhatsApp is now, you know, like, because the reason WeChat is WeChat is because of Chinese people. It's not because of WeChat. And the reason WhatsApp is WhatsApp is because of Western people and it's because of what happened here. So, uh, it's, yeah, again, it's like always people driving the platforms, not the other way around. And I think, Arnold, that is an excellent segue to actually move into talking about the various platforms in China, especially WeChat, because yeah. as you guys have to advise your clients and everything, you've got to know all the platforms inside out, see what's up and coming. Mm. So if you could give a wee deep dive for <clears throat> listeners into exactly what WeChat is, oh my God. how it runs. I mean, yeah, so I guess uh, probably start off by saying that WeChat is unlike anything else in the West. Um, and, and I think sometimes, and I've done this before, I remember when we met um, at the uh, social chain event that uh, I even tried to compare kind of WeChat to like uh, amalgamation of Facebook, Twitter, PayPal, um, I don't know, like Uber, um, Just Eat. It's like all of these things merged into one. It's fair to say that's what Facebook wishes it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or what's trying to become. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think it is what Facebook is trying to become. Um, so what's WeChat, we always say it's less of a social platform. It's more of a social OS um, in the sense that what's the... So an operating system is, is, is essentially a piece of software that amalgamates other software and creates a platform for other software to live uh, it's like an ecosystem and that's what WeChat exactly is. It, it's, it's an operating system, uh, that has the social functions at its core, uh, at, at, at the core of the platform, but then everything else like payment, like bookings, like, um, like, uh, like e-commerce, it, it all sits on top of this one platform, hence like a social OS. Um, I guess some examples, um, you guys should listen to which episode? Episode, I think it's episode four, Louisa. Episode two, yeah. So episode two, we have an entire episode on uh, on on what WeChat is, and we talked to kind of like one of the WeChat experts in Do you China. Want to the name of your podcast? Give yeah. So the podcast well, yeah. is called <laughs> China WTF. Uh, it stands for China. What's the future? And the idea is to look at what's happening in China and try to figure out what might happen in the West on the back of that. Because we firmly believe due to kind of like the fast socioeconomic movement and rapid adaptation of technology and innovation and the lack of legacy behavior that stifles innovation a lot of times that China is moving at a rapid rate and it's testing and learning and evolving very quickly. 
So Western technology business is now looking at China to see what works and what doesn't, what sticks, what doesn't stick, and they'll adapt that, adopt that into their own platforms. And you mentioned already about Facebook. And I think WhatsApp, which is obviously owned by Facebook, is basically copying WeChat. Um, they announced WhatsApp Pay. Um, I don't know if you heard about that. I actually haven't. Also no, announced WhatsApp customer service, um, which is kind of like brand accounts when you're able to talk to your customers on a one-on-one basis. What's yeah. WeChat's been doing that for years and years. Um, so yeah, you can definitely see like, uh, you can also use QR codes on LinkedIn to connect. You can use QR codes on Instagram and Facebook. Like this is all, it's all stuff that, yeah, that are now coming over from east to west rather than the other way around. Well, it's funny, you guys were laughing on one of the podcast episodes about how QR codes just did not become something, yeah. right? And it's funny, the only thing that uses it is for connecting my phone to the camera. That's, That's the pretty only good. time I can think in five years <laughs> that has done it. Do you think yeah. it'll ever, do you think QR codes will ever take off over here or? I think it's a really good question. I think we'll probably, my personal opinion, I think we'll leapfrog the QR technology and move on to something much easier as an input, as a, as, as a method of input. Because essentially QR code is just a faster method of input than typing someone's username and connecting to each other. Yeah. It's just a quick scan, boom, you're connected. Quick quick scan, boom, you've paid. Um, the next thing is, of course, AI, right? Facial recognition. You walk into a store, you pick something up, you walk out, boom. Yeah. Like, I don't think, I think, I don't think West, the West will ever adapt QR because I think the West will skip to the next iteration of the input technology that'll make our lives better. Well, it's funny because I feel the West is a wee bit more privacy, data oriented. And I know people like myself, paranoid thanks to my mum, about doing the fingerprint thing, about doing the facial recognition thing, because I'm not this extreme, but you you don't want the government having it on file. You don't want someone having access to your face. You You don't don't want that data in the cloud somewhere. Yeah. And... People don't have the same sort of concerns in China, yeah. which is why I'm curious if you think, is that just going to come naturally over time with the younger generations in the Western world? Do mm. you think there'll always be a pushback? Is, is it that unwillingness to give that sort of information what's maybe holding the West back holding from keeping people up back, with China? Yeah. Um, just a good question. I haven't really thought much about the privacy issue because I, I've always been the kind of guy that I love technology, right? So I don't really care what data they have on me. Yeah. If the technology makes my life easier, I'll just do it. Like I've been using Apple Pay since the day it came out. And I get frustrated when a shop doesn't doesn't accept Apple Pay now. Yeah. With facial recognition, it's so easy. You just like double click, boom, you pay, done, you're out. Um, so I don't know, I guess from a privacy point of view, so um, China, a lot of this is quite new in China. So it, there hasn't been that period of, I guess it hasn't been around long enough for people to create concerns and backlash on privacy. And whereas kind of like the internet, like personal data has been around in the West decades longer than it has been around in China, like decades and decades. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why there's more rules and restrictions and regulations and I guess focus on this issue. In China, that's less so. It went from zero to 100, so yeah. no one even had time to privacy <laughs> concerns, right? Yeah, that's a great summary of it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get across, yeah. No, interesting. So I guess going back to WeChat, just because I think it's fascinating for people to hear about, can you go through the bit talking about like how people use it? You've given examples yeah, of, of, how, of comparisons to what we know it as, but I honestly just don't think, given the chunks that it is in the Western yeah. world, really clicks in people's brain just how big a part yeah. WeChat is in people's lives without hearing it. So what it is really is if you can imagine, instead of using like loads of different apps to do loads of different things. So for example, we would use WhatsApp for messaging. We would use Instagram and Facebook for sharing social, life logging essentially for sharing like your life, like pictures. We would use Uber to like maybe get a taxi. We would use eBay to like buy something like P2P transactions. We would use PayPal to pay for something on the internet. We would use maybe like an app for you to, I don't know, maybe like you would use like a banking app to to kind of like manage your finances and stuff. Like all of these happening in WeChat, right, in China. 
So people just have WeChat and then you install mini programs, which would do all of these separate things. So you would have like a mini program with your bank that is essentially a WeChat app. So just as you get an Apple app, you have a WeChat app. You would get like a mini program to order food uh, that belongs another program, uh, sorry, another company, but you would create a mini app within WeChat where you can order food directly and money would come out of your WeChat pay instantaneously. So all of that is integrated. Um, And obviously you can have like conversation as well with your friends, with your colleagues, can have moments, which is where your social media feed is. I mean, everything around it, that's what makes WeChat what it is. It's just, it's best way to describe it's probably like a web of services that is brought together by a social OS, essentially. The social media marketer in me wants to ask, out of my own curiosity, the way Facebook collects data on the pixel to advertise specific things to you, does WeChat do that? Ooh. Like, can people do paid ads yes, via WeChat? Yes, you can, yeah. Um, so they must be amazing because well, they know what you're buying, what you're eating, where you're going. No, it's less, uh, this is a good point, actually. So WeChat paid products are less, you can't do as much audience targeting as you can on WeChat as you can right. uh, as you do on Facebook. And what's even more important is that WeChat doesn't make its money from advertising, whereas Facebook does, and a lot of Western social media platform does. They monetize by using people's data, whereas WeChat monetizes by creating services that take a very small percentage of people of of like say transactions. So WeChat Pay is one of China's largest payment platforms alongside with Alipay. And they take a very, very small percentage of transactions. And a lot of their revenue comes from services and utilities rather than monetizing by utilizing people's data of advertising. And maybe that's the reason, I didn't think of this earlier when you asked that question, maybe that's the reason that privacy issue isn't so big in China because people's data are not being monetized. WeChat is a service platform. It makes money by providing a service yeah. and making people's life lives easier so if i get off the plane book a taxi through wechat or we charge and that goes to wechat and then i order through food through wechat we charge goes to wechat like a very well. very small fee not on the consumer side on the business side yeah yeah okay. like so small you barely even notice it but the volume of transactions on wechat is so big that it's enough for them to sustain the revenue you've always got people talking about what's next after facebook and instagram what's that can anything come after wechat yeah there there will be so again it goes i think it goes back to the idea of like understanding where the kind of like where the chinese where chinese people especially gen z and millennials where gen z's are heading towards and where chinese culture is heading towards and we talk we talk a lot about why wechat is so popular um a lot of it's related to chinese culture it's a closed ecosystem so you can't see your friends friends post it's very direct you can only talk to people you know, and you can only see the social feed of people you know. And that's right. related to kind of like the Chinese Guanxi culture. Rather than going to like yellow pages back in the day, you probably remember or Google. Can you explain what that you is? Because I've friends. heard on the podcast, but for people yeah, who yeah. To so uh, Guanxi is a very simple concept. Instead of you finding something yourself, like a doctor or plumber, you always go to your friends and ask them. If they don't know, they'll ask their friend. It's seven degrees separation. Eventually, you find someone who knows someone who's a plumber or doctor. Yeah. And there's always, rather than, which happens in the UK, actually, it does happen, right? Like you might introduce me to a plumber, you know, but then you leave me to talk to the plumber directly. That doesn't happen in China. There's always someone in the middle. I'll talk to the plumber through you. And it's kind of like, there's always like a familiarity in the middle and it creates kind of this like star topology where you're connecting to everyone through someone else rather than a web, which is more of the, the social makeup in the West. How badly is it frowned upon if the person, if I recommend a plumber to oh, you, that's okay. if the plumber lights you down, am I then? Oh yeah, in yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, yeah, house? you're responsible for your recommendations. Really? <laughs> and then there's a long-term grudge held, or no, 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 it's person like, to person yeah, these, areas, these so things okay. happen, yeah, persons yeah. to person, yeah, you're right. Uh, just because there's a whole word for that specific, yeah, cultural the, the, aspect, yeah, so the Guanxi culture, yeah. Um, another thing uh, for, for, for WeChat, and we think why it's so popular, I'll, I'll get on to answering the question in a second, well, sorry. That's, <laughs> there's no strict <laughs> The other thing is we talked a lot about social currency uh, before as well in our previous podcast. Currency or money in the UK is seen as just money, right? Like you use money to buy something. And when you give someone a gift, if you give them money, it's, I think it's almost seen as like you don't care, you're not putting thought into it. Rather than buying them like a gift, like something you know they like, like a whiskey or like a rare piece of whatever, yeah. you give them money, it's seen as a bad thing. But in China, it's okay. Like money has always been 
a social currency as well as a currency. So in Chinese tradition of the red packets, you probably heard of like Chinese New Year, parents would give their kids red packets yeah. with money inside. Grandparents would give their grandkids. Managers would give their kind of team red packets as well. It's like uh, it's called ya sui qian. Ya sui qian means like something that it's almost like keeps you young. Like it kind of like that's why it's always from the older generation to the younger generation. Right. It's something. Uh, it's like a lucky red packet. It's like a way to say you know oh, you know oh, it's difficult to translate. But yeah, it's basically like a sign of affection or something that. It's passed down. It's not like a. It's not like a bad thing to give people money or give people a red packet. If anything, it's like it's like a sign of affection. And I guess in China as well, like kind of like business and personal has never really because of the Guanxi culture, right? Like people do each other business favors as well as personal favors. So if you do business in China, better if you had Guanxi with people in your industry because they would be more willing to help you, sure. introduce you to like clients or partners. But if you're strangers, they Probably will just ignore you. So networking events isn't a thing in China. No, there are. There are now. There's loads of networking events, but you can build Guanxi from scratch. So rather than networking and being like, "Oh, we're doing business now," you normally go out for dinner a few times, get to know each other, talk a little bit more. People like to do business or prefer to business in China. People they know better. Sure. So that blurs line between personal and professional. So WeChat as a platform, people use it for both work and personal life. And you don't really get that. I think in the West, you have your emails for professional. You maybe you have your WhatsApp for personal. It's less merged and it's less kind of like amalgamated as is in China. Like everyone talks on WeChat. Like. I'm talking to like the ex CEO of WPP on 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 WeChat. Like you you just don't do that in the West. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the line is blurred, and like friendship and business, the lines are blurred as well. And I think those couple of things, like the red packet, the closed system, the kind of blurred of professional personal, is what is is one of the few things. So some of the things that made WeChat so popular in the first place, because of the way that it essentially created like a digital version of the Chinese culture. And your question, kind of, what's next? I think. We always say, I think a lot of people say this that short form video is is probably the next big thing. So TikTok and Douyin, but I think it's less about short form video. It's more about how content is consumed and how social media content is being pushed to people. So at the moment, any social network is essentially content led by your friendship circles. So social led content, so or, or rather kind of like network led content. You you're on Facebook. You're seeing stuff in your network. You're on LinkedIn. You're seeing stuff in your network. You're very rarely seeing things outside your network. With Douyin,、uh, and an,、uh, it's it's more about is Douyin the Chinese Chinese TikTok? TikTok yeah. yeah, TikTok is the same. It's it's interest led content rather than network led content. The AI learns what you like and what you watch and what you've skipped and what you've liked, how long you've watched each thing, and it gives you content from the entire range of the content that's available on the platform, and it serves you things that isn't based and restricted by the bubble that you live in. And I think I think the next step of evolution for social media globally, not just in China, is that we're going to move away from network-led content to more interest-led content. And that's how people will start to absorb content more. Well, is that how Instagram's kind of gone now? You know, if you go and explore tab, yeah, I get videos of dogs and men's fashion because that's the industry I work in. So is that kind of what you're talking? It's funny you get. I also get Instagrams of dogs. Yeah, <laughs> everyone gets.、Uh, yeah, gonna, everyone gets dogs <laughs> on Instagram. <Yeah> . <laughs> I gotta say, at least eighty percent of people have them, and if they don't, I don't trust them. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Instagram is still very kind of network based. It doesn't feel like the AI is as smart or as almost kind of as brave as maybe like something on Douyin. Like I use Douyin,、um, and sometimes you get like a random video that isn't related to anything you've watched, and you're like, oh yeah, I like this, and then you get more of that. I don't know. Maybe maybe Instagram is more direct in the sense that if you've watched like a dog. Video will give you more dog videos, but let's say you've watched a video about I don't know. I'm trying to think of example like an indirect connection that maybe like isn't isn't as obvious. Yeah, like something like Douyin would make that connection, whereas I think something like Instagram would probably struggle. Instagram would struggle to make that indirect connection of interest. Um, right, because it's dogs, it's dogs. It's not going to see. Yeah, yeah. If it's something. cooking, it's cooking. It's、yeah. not like oh,、uh, you know, if this guy likes cooking, chances are he might like photography. What me and my friends talk about is on TripAdvisor, 
you know, if you go to a restaurant or something, the next algorithm thing that would make sense is, you know, you know, you get a restaurant and it's like, here's the top five recommended restaurants yeah. in your area. And you go to like the top three and they're horrendous and they're not to your taste at all. Yeah. So you'd think the next algorithmic thing is suggestions based on people like you. And it sounds like that's what the, Doyen is yeah, doing. It's that's what they're doing, but suggestions similar people who are into your things yeah exactly and i think i think TripAdvisor is missing a massive a massive opportunity there as well because food is a very personal thing it's very subjective like if if you like the same things i like chances are your recommendation would suit me exactly yeah but it's very personal like in they need to create a thing where i don't know you're matching people's taste against other people's taste rather than generic like if you like sushi you like this restaurant yeah, it's not not just not the case. <laughs> be, here's people who've liked restaurants the same amount yeah. as you. Exactly. Here's their yeah. recommendations because I've been to so many with a disappointing thing. I so know, I maybe that will be the next algorithmic thing China I, figures out, and then yeah, I maybe think the West will catch. It. I think China is investing heavy on AI, and I think AI is going to change the way we consume social media content and the way that social media platforms are. People in the space keep saying the cream will rise as these changes yeah. and intelligence grows. Exactly. So less crap con- content, exactly. quality stuff yeah. like this. So <laughs> like this. <laughs> so that's a good sort of deep dive into the Chinese social media app. Something that I always like to get into this podcast is obviously... The name. The name, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's how I always introduce it. I mean, you've been doing this for seven years, eight years. God, don't remind me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And we spoke about how you saw the development of China over that time, but can you go into the development of the changes in your life? God. What that's brought about, the growth of the business, the changes for Cumin? I don't know, I guess for me personally, is it cliche to say that uh, every time people ask me what it's like, it's always, it's not like a steady, it's not a steady curve, right? It's not like you start from point one and then seven years later, you're at point 10. It doesn't work like that. The highs are incredibly high like you're so happy you're ecstatic when something goes well you're like it's like euphoria but when 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 things are don't go well and the lows are like super low like you're depressed you hate yourself you hate everyone around you and i think that's kind of like that relates to the fact that you you just have to have insane perseverance in order to make through all of that like the, the incredible highs and the ridiculously lows um, and because it's, it's, yeah, there's just like so many ups and downs and it's just very well, unpredictable. Well, would you say you're lucky in the fact that you have two partners who I assume yeah, go definitely, through the exact definitely. same highs and lows as you? I think a lot of people don't have that and you, you need to find people that share the same interests and the same passions as you because, you, you know, you can't, you can't build something great by yourself. You need you, you need to work as a team um, in, order, in order to achieve what you want to do. No, no one, it doesn't matter how amazing you are, you can't do everything by yourself. Yeah. Because one of the big things is that people are always talking about work-life balance. But when you've been doing this for seven years and all <laughs> yeah. that, you know, there's one argument that you need it and there's one that there is no such thing as work-life balance. How easy, difficult, not think about the highs and lows, has it been to get to this point? You know, when you've got like family, friends, yeah. possibly relationships clamoring for your time. I think that's a really good question. I think personally, I've kind of put my life on hold because of the business. I joke and say to people, I think I said to Louisa before that I've lost so many friends. I used to have so many more friends before I started Cumin. Like every year goes by, you have less. That's not necessarily a bad thing because you know the ones that are still friends with you are your best friends and the ones that you'll be friends with for the rest of your life. Because regardless whether you have time for them or not, every time you meet them, it feels like you you saw them yesterday. Yeah. And you know, those are the people that you really want to be around in your life. If you stop, socializing with people if they invite you out to stuff and you don't go the first time the second time and eventually they'll just be like you know they'll, they'll stop kind of you guys will just drift apart i yeah. don't think it's like any it's just that you just drift apart if you don't talk to some people who maybe you haven't been as close to previously so is there any sort of like what ifs i definitely want to have a family like i love kids i think i want to have a bunch of kids i want to have a big family so my partners tom and pong they both have children uh, right, both okay. have daughters maybe i just feel like i'm not i'm the kind of person that's kind of very black and white i'll either do something and i'll dedicate my whole life and all my time to it or i'll just not do it all and i'll completely ignore it i just don't feel like i'm the kind of person who could maybe it's like i think it's one of my weaknesses that i don't think i could balance being a dad as well as being kind of like someone who runs a business. I don't have confidence in myself to be able to juggle that. Whereas those guys, 
looks like they ejaculate quite well. Yeah. And I know a lot of people do. No, no, and that's the point. There's so many different yeah. personalities out there. It's like if you're spreading your your time and your responsibilities, mm. it's hard. And I think I'm the same as you, Arnold, to be honest. I feel balancing mm. so it's many difficult. things would be quite Scary. hard. When you commit to something, it's like go all in. Yeah. One of my favorite phrases is like burn the boats. You're not thinking about anything else. You've got oh. to commit to that I one like thing, that. take over and it's all or nothing. Yeah, no plan B. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting that your partners have done it. What's the various positions of you guys? Pong is in China. He's essentially the China MD. Yeah. And Tom is a client services director. So he's essentially uh, new business clients, whereas I'm basically managing the entire business. And not to get too deep, but do you wish you were able to balance things more? Because if it makes you feel better, I don't. I quite enjoy the really 100% commitment to things, going all in and then giving it my all. I think, I so first of all, I don't think I would change anything over the last seven years. I certainly wouldn't. I don't regret anything we've done or the mistakes I've made. God knows there's enough mistakes I've made. I don't regret any of it. And I don't regret not starting a family because I've enjoyed... <laughs> I've hated and enjoyed every moment of it. And you know, you, you can't have, you can't have the enjoy, you can't have the ups without the downs, right? Sure. I think I want to be on this a hundred percent. I want to dedicate my time to doing what we're doing, to creating great work, to, to making the business success rather than splitting my time. And when I'm done and when we're done here, then maybe I can focus on kind of like something else, family or whatever it may be. It's interesting that you said there's been like so many failures and stuff. Because <laughs> people say like yeah. common wisdom is fail fast. It's how you learn the lessons. No one really learns from succeeding. Yeah, exactly. Like, what advice would you give to people who were scared of failing? Who oh wanted to start their own business, but they just like, I imagine a huge percentage yeah. of people have is the fear of failure. You know, one, one thing was the best, one of the best advice I had was to tell everyone what you're doing because you never know who might be able to help. You don't have to take this journey yourself, but you need to be prepared that it is going to be very lonely. Um, even if you do kind of have partners and you have people, like it's it's just a very lonely journey. A lot of times you have to kind of like be comfortable with yourself and your own company and your own thoughts. Do you do anything to get to that I point? I don't. I should do. Um, <laughs> I've started to try and kind of like be a bit more healthy, like, go to classes recently and it's kind of made it's made it a lot better you feel better i generally think healthy body healthy mind is i, I spend years not believing in that but once you do it you'll actually yeah like it makes a lot of sense but in terms of like people who are starting i would say only do it if and again this might be cliche only do it if it's a thing that you care about the most in the world and you genuinely believe you can spend all your time doing it regardless of how difficult it might be because it's going to get fucking difficult like you're going to want to like rip your hair out at some stage and it's it's not going to get easy it doesn't matter how big you get it's just going to keep getting harder uh, but once you get through those then you see kind of like the ups and the reward that you get from it yeah just make sure that it is something you genuinely want to do it's not just like like a random idea um, it's something you're passionate about so the reason that i like this so much is because i've always missed kind of like the china side of my life moving over here at such a young age i've always wanted to know more about chinese culture chinese history chinese people i love technology i genuinely love technology and this is the best platform for me to be able to get all of those fixes just make sure it's what you want to do because it's going to get hard but yeah. don't don't be afraid of failure because everyone fails like like uh, i think you were saying earlier that no one talks about the failures everyone talks about the successes like the zuckerbergs like the snapping for every one of those guys there's like a million people who's failed and there's a million people who's not a fucking tech billionaire but that doesn't mean they're not successful in their own right or they're not kind of satisfied with their own lives and you know if you're doing it what do you really have to lose if you fail just pick yourself back up and try again like anything anything is possible right like anything before you get to your goal I've always said it's just a bump along the road and for me I guess um I've been very lucky in the sense that I've had great role models in my life um my mom 
And my uncles went through the Cultural Revolution. Um, I don't know if you know much about it. So uh, ac academics were sent to countryside. They weren't allowed to study. Uh, so my grandpa, my granddad was a was the smartest guy I know. He was a professor at university back in the day. He spoke like three languages. He used to write books and he even curated the Chinese English dictionary. But during Cultural Revolution, they were all sent to the countryside. They lived in a house, like 10 people, smaller than the studio you're sitting in now. They had to work in the fields during the day. They will now go to school. So my mom and my uncle studied under street lamps at night to put them through university, a wow. college and university, and eventually got a scholarship to come over to this country and did her PhD. She was like a professor at the age of like 23 or something ridiculous. Right, wow. So every time I have a I have a challenge in the business or in my life, I'm just that kind of inspiration puts you into perspective. You're like, if they can get through that, what's in front of me is literally nothing. And if you're someone who is an entrepreneur who's thinking of starting something, think about all the people in the world that are facing much difficult, more difficult problems than you are. Just it puts life into perspective and it puts the challenges into perspective. If you fail, then just try again. It, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, take the lesson you've learned from it and just carry on. It's all about perseverance uh, and having the kind of heart to just continue through the, the, the downtimes of failures. And you're going to meet a lot of people who are negative, who are like, you can't do this, this is impossible, like, it's gonna be really hard. Just fucking ignore those people. Again, it's cliche, like, <laughs> yeah. just ignore those people because the reason they're saying that is because they don't have the confidence or the bravery to be able to do themselves. So they want to kind of almost tie you into their their world. Just believe in yourself and, and just, just do it. Arnold, I think that's actually a great note to end on to leave people with something to think with. So thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs> that was great. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Guys, and that was it. If you liked it, definitely, definitely check out Arnold's podcast, WTF China. Or if you've got LinkedIn, definitely give him a follow on that because he's always sharing articles or his own thoughts every couple of days or so with what China are getting up to, what they're doing, the new technologies, and just keeping up with the massively intense fast pace of everything they're doing. As always, please like, subscribe, comment, leave a review if you liked it. Follow the Instagram page where I get to engage with the community, see your guys' thoughts. Fourth episode is going to be out this Monday where I interview an old friend of mine, Amar Singh. And I will see you then.